Chapter Sixteen of Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He expected to be gone several weeks, so Georgia telephoned the janitor to tell Mama that she would stay down for dinner again, but would be home soon afterwards. Mason took her to the top of a tall building where there was a sixty-cent table d'hôte. The topic, of course, was his forthcoming trip from routine to adventure and its probable effect upon their fortunes for all the wise saws about not talking to women one may hardly dine with his fiancée of a day without mention of the marvellous opportunity which dropped before one that morning as from the skies especially if she is in the same business and heard it drop so little by little one thing leading to another he told her everything he knew or guessed or hoped. He did not once forget Silverman's injunction to silence, as he babbled on. It stuck in his mind like a thorn in the foot, and, telling himself he was a fool to talk, he talked. The precise moment didn't seem to come when he could frankly say, without offence, "'Georgia, that part of it is a secret.' And he didn't see how to temporize widely, for it had become physically impossible for him to lie to her, though, of course, he retained the use of his faculties for commerce with others. So he passed on the ever-heavy load of silence, hoping that she could hold her tongue if he couldn't. It was as much her affair as his anyway, so he felt, and if by her indiscretion she should cut him out of Silverman's confidence and future big things, she would in the same motion cut herself out of a Pano six and a house in the trees and a richer circle of friends. But, inasmuch as she was a case-hardened private secretary, she kept her faith with him in this thing at least. If he never had a Pano six, it wasn't her fault. The most surprising thing to her in his narrative was that it did not greatly interest her. It seemed to her a far-off affair, impersonal, like something she was reading in the papers. Stevens seemed to stand outside her area of life, which had become narrow and curiously uneasy, heavy with a future in which he was not concerned. At first he attributed the listlessness, which she tried to conceal but could not, to one of the widely advertised feminine moods, and he tried his best to divert her, not merely with pictures of their future, blissful and automobileful, but also with quips and cranks and wanton wiles. No go. So when course six of the table d'hôte, nuts and pecans, three of each to the order, was ended, he suggested that perhaps she would better go directly home instead of waiting downtown with him until his train went. She acquiesced. They walked to the L in silence. Imagine the chagrin of a knight riding off to the bloody wars from a lady who didn't care if he never came back. That was how it struck him. She took his arm to climb the steep iron stairs, and at the top stopped a moment to get her breath. "'Dear heart,' she said, "'don't have all those awful thoughts about me. Don't you suppose I know what you're thinking? I've been dull to-night, but my head is simply splitting. I believe I'm in for the grip.' He looked at his watch. I'm sure I can take you home and get back in time. Rather than have you risk it, I'll stay down until your train goes. 
Promise me then to get to a doctor and go right to bed. I'll go right to bed. I can barely hold my head up, and I'll get a doctor in the morning if I'm not better. There were only two or three other people on the long platform, so he kissed her good-bye. Then the screened iron gate was slapped to behind her. The guard jerked his cord, she smiled weakly, and waved her hand back at him, and it was all over for a much longer time than he had any idea of. He watched her train until the tail-lights turned the loop, then said, Hell, lit a cigar, pushed his hat back, sighed, and went to check his trunk. He sat up in the smoking compartment, gassing with drummers until the last of them turned in sympathized for a while with the Pullman porter, who suffered volubly as soon as Mason gave him permission to. He had been married that very afternoon, and now he was off to Los Angeles and back, a ten-day journey, leaving behind him as a dark and shining mark for those who realized the devilishness of his itinerary, an unprotected, young, gay-hearted bride. He appreciated the snares that would be set for her by his brothers of brush and birth. He'd been a bachelor himself. Yes, sir. Railroadin' is sure one yellow dog's life for a family man. Stevens lay awake a long time that night thinking of the future, and Georgia lay awake a long time considering the past. She felt hot and thirsty. Three or four times she got out of bed and ran the faucet until the water was cold and bathed her face and drank. After she had left Stevens, she had taken a cross seat in the car facing homeward, and, placing her burning cheek against the window for coolness, had dozed off for many stations. When she awoke with a start at the one beyond her own, her personality had slipped to its earlier centre as definitely as when a clutch slips from high to second speed. It is said that the last step gained by the individual or the race is the first step lost in sickness, age, and fear. So Georgia's illness began its attack on the topmost layer of her character, that part of it which had been built in the recent years. She was driven, as it were, to a lower floor of her own edifice and no longer saw so wide a view. Her pride and self-will crumbled, for the sick aren't proud, and her modernity trickled away. After all, was it not more peaceful to do what people thought you ought to than to fight them constantly for your own way? Life was too short and human nature too weak for the stress and strain of such ceaseless resistance as she had made in the past few years against her family, the friends of her family, and the church. For God's sake, let her now have peace. Yes, for God's sake. The words had come irreverently to her mind. But, after all, could she or anyone else have peace except from God? And was there any other gift as sweet? She knew there was one sure anodyne for her troubled spirit, and only one, the confessional. She had kept away too long already, for more than two years. She would go to-morrow, or perhaps the next day, and wash her soul clean. Father Hervey would talk to her as if to rip her heart-strings out, but in the end he would leave her with peace, after she had promised and vowed to give up her mortal sin. Poor Mason! that meant him. She wept a few weak tears, then dried her eyes on the corner of the sheet. 
So this was to be the end of her spiritual adventuring, the end of the free expression of her free being, and selfhood, and all those other valorous things she had rejoiced in. She wasn't able any longer to go on with it. She must desert the army of women in the day of battle, the army led by Curie, Key, Pankhurst, Schreiner, Adams, Gilman, and cross over to the adversary, the encompassing church. It would absorb her into its vast unity as a drop disappears in the sea. It would think for her and will for her. She would be animated with its life, and not her own but it would suffice her with the comfort that is past understanding. She would eat the lotus and submit. She was not strong, like great people. Perhaps the priest would suggest her return to Jim. But that wasn't in the law. He could only suggest and urge it. He could not insist on it. She couldn't go back to Jim. She couldn't. She couldn't. She sobbed as if there were a presence in the room which she hoped to move by her tears. A clear vision of her husband came before her, as she had often seen him, sitting on the edge of this very bed, in undershirt and trousers, leaning forward, breathing abominably loud, his paunch sagging, unlacing his shoes. Right or wrong, good or bad, heaven or hell, that was one sight the priest should never make her see again. She hated Jim, and loathed him forever. As she was dressing next morning, she called to Al to please go down and telephone for the doctor, for she knew she could never go through the day's work without medicine. Presently Dr. Randall bowled up, a jolly, stout man, smiling gaily and crinkling up the corners of his eyes, though he had slept just eight hours in the last seventy-two. The family was glumly finishing breakfast when he came. Throughout the meal Mrs. Talbot had been burningly aware of the contrast between decent, self-respecting women with a thought to themselves, and brazen young fly-by-nights in thin waists who run after men and make themselves free. But she threw only a few pertinent remarks into the atmosphere, because the poor girl was so evidently out of sorts with her high colour and not touching a bite of food. Indeed, a body could hardly help feeling sorry for her, for all her wicked pride of will. Very likely this sickness was a judgment on her for it. When Dr. Randall had considered her pulse, her temperature and her tongue, and asked half a dozen questions, he told Al to send for a carriage and take her immediately to Columbus Hospital. "'Why, doctor!' exclaimed Mrs. Talbot, terrorized. "'Is it anything serious?' "'Typhoid. I'll telephone to let him know you're coming.' The doctor departed, and Mrs. Talbot took Georgia on her lap and crooned over her until the carriage came. End of chapter 16